Hi friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening to ASP Stories. Remember, this is not the standard adventure sports podcast episode where we interview amazing guests about adventure sports and amazing feats that they've done. But instead, this is the bonus weekend edition. It comes out on Saturdays, and this is where we share adventure-related readings from authors. Right now, we're in the middle of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. But the good news is we have several more authors that have signed up to read segments from their books for your entertainment on Saturday morning. So we envision this as a little bonus episode that helps you kick off your adventure-filled weekend. In the reading so far, we've heard a lot about what it's like to live at altitude at 8,240 feet above sea level, about the lifestyle, about the scenery, about the weather, about the seasons. But now the book starts to transition into high altitude adventure stories, mostly about mountaineering and things like that. So sit back and enjoy today's ASP stories. Today is September 8th. Fall begins in roughly two weeks. It's still summer, but yesterday I awoke to a dusting of snow on our deck. Our thermometer read 28 degrees. The day before that was warm and pleasant. Yesterday's cold front was followed by a more virulent one. This morning there are 6 inches of powdery snow covering everything. The temperatures are in the 20s. I'm a little shocked. The aspen are still green. This early storm has bent them to odd angles under their unexpected burden of snow, Usually, they've scattered their leaves before the snow comes. Not this year. I wonder what the fall and winter have in store for us. Will the snow blow off the aspen trees, allowing them to follow their normal ritual of color changes? Or will the snow leave them brown and crusty? Are we to skip fall altogether this year? Will there be more snow next week and the next? Does the early storm warn of record winter snows and cold winds? All I know for certain is that this is absolutely beautiful. My son, now four, awoke full of smiles. He declared that Christmas had come and we could not contain him until he was bundled up and rolling in the snow. My two-year-old daughter joined him and they feasted on the unseasonable bounty, literally. They sat in a pile eating handful after handful of snow Just to seal the authenticity of the event, my daughter lost her mittens in the snow and came whining back into the house. Why do I feel a little out of sorts? It does look like Christmas, but in September? Forget the calendar. It still claims it's summer. Here at 8240, we are getting a foretaste of winter before fall even begins. Life at 8240 is wonderfully unpredictable. For me, that is much of its charm. I hope that the snow will melt quickly and that we will enjoy a long, warm fall. Still, this is not likely. Winter here starts in October, guaranteed. Fall. There's something mysterious that happens in the late summer of every year. If one's in tune with nature, really in tune, then he or she will sense it. At first, the sensation may be one of having lost a sense of time, or even of having run out of time, but the sensation might start with a smell. No, there's no aroma that can be detected, but the air smells different. Following these sensations is a burst of energy. Something very deep inside whispers, Get moving. Get with it. Then there's the light. Perhaps the lighting is the cause of this mysterious feeling. Somehow on this day, the sunlight is different. 
It looks different. It feels different. The way that the sunshine licks bare skin is different. Each year when this happens, I know that something wonderful is going on. A change has taken place. What is it? How will it touch my life? What will happen next? There is peace, but mixed in with the peace is a deep excitement. I'm not the only living thing to notice. Matter of fact, humans are one of the few living things that might not notice. Everywhere, trees, shrubs, rabbits, deer, elk, foxes, mice, birds, and bears, notice. This event happens without announcement each year, and it sneaks up on the creation. At 8240, this day marks the beginning of what I call the Golden Weeks. This period falls well ahead of the fall equinox. The Golden Weeks comprise a miniature season between summer and fall. During the Golden Weeks, all of creation changes rhythm. Although the temperatures stay very similar to summer temperatures, the plants begin to change. Small plants show at first. The green grasses begin to take on shades of tan, orange, and gold. Then the shrubs join in on the action, flashing brilliant yellows, reds, and purples. Ground squirrels scurry to hide away one more pine nut or tasty mountain cranberry. The bears seem to shift into high gear. Sensing the changing season, black bears seem to grow more daring. They are more willing to take risks to ingest that final feast before the long sleep. Keep the trash cans locked away. Carry the flashlight at night. The bears are moving, and they are brave. The mule deer seem more twitchy. They should. Hunting season is near. Soon, they'll be forced down into tight valleys to hide from winter's strong winds. The easy grazing will be over for them. The shrubs are drying out. A few more weeks, and the snow will hide the ground altogether. The tips of the pine boughs and niblets of aspen bark will soon be the staples. But not yet. Fall is not yet here. There are still a few more chances to tank up and store up. The energy of the season is evident among the creatures, but the plants are winding down. Still, the climax of the weeks of gold has not yet come. There is a hesitancy. Not yet. Not yet. For a moment, the creatures seem to pause. At least, I know that I do. I pause on my deck in the mornings, on the way to work, to breathe in the changes in the natural world around me. A hot cup of tea and a sweater are in order on these early mornings. We can all sense it happening. Sap is flowing down the trees into the roots, where its life force will hibernate until spring. We wait to see the effects. It won't be long now. A few weeks have passed since the golden weeks began. The birds are antsy to get going. When will we go? They seem to call from the trees. How do they know? I ponder from my perch on the deck. But wait just a little longer. For a few short days, we all hold our breath. Then it happens. Overnight, the aspen trees burst into fiery yellows mixed with some oranges and reds. A few trees hold out to remain green for just a little longer. The greens complement the yellows and the deep, deep blue sky provides the perfect backdrop. The thin leaves are translucent and the morning sunlight seems to set the colors on fire. There are explosions of color. Blue spruce, deep green ponderosas, lime green and fiery yellow aspen, red shrubs and orange grasses. Each day the visual symphony heightens in intensity. About a week into this display, almost all the aspen trees are golden, but a few have started to turn loose, too tired to hold on any longer. 
The trees on the higher slopes are the first to do the yellow dance, and they are the first to rest. The slow-moving wave of color passes down from these high places until the lowest trees have thrown themselves into the frenzy. The equinox is very near now, and true fall is about to begin. A mild nighttime snow squall dusts the high peaks. The white alps add even more color to the canvas, and then, as quickly as it came, it's over. The aspen go quiet. The leaves still shine from the ground where they lie scattered over the green mosses, but soon all will be covered with white snows that blend with the bare white trunks above. The sun continues its journey south of the equator, and the bears start yawning. The big snows will be here soon. Winter starts in the fall at 8240. The golden weeks are past. Hey, we have a new sponsor on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm excited about this one. I've been wondering for a long time when active technology was going to be incorporated with clothing to do cool things. And here's an example. This is Action Heat. Action Heat is a line of clothing that actually weaves heating elements into the clothes. It works similarly to how a car seat is heated except that it runs off a little rechargeable battery pack. And this battery pack can last up to 12 hours on a charge. It can also recharge your cell phone or other devices, so it's multi-purpose. And they have all kinds of options here. Hats, they have jackets, they have shirts, they have socks, they have gloves, they even have undergarments like long johns. Man, they will keep you cozy from head to toe. I can see using this motorcycle riding, riding up the lift at the ski area, watching a ball game, anytime I need that little extra boost of heat, this stuff really fits the bill. So, Action Heat, you can get it at action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Please do use the forward slash adventure for two reasons. For one, that's how they know that you heard about them from us. For two, it saves you 15%. So how cool is that? Your holiday shopping is done. All you have to do is go to action-heat.com forward slash adventure. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. I realize that the short summer has ended. It's time to get ready for the snowy months. I walk around the property looking for toys or tools that might have been left out. When the first snow comes, these items could be lost until May. Balls, sandbox toys, the garden hose, and planters are all gathered into the garage. I see our pile of firewood, which has grown laboriously during the summer. There should be enough wood, but it still needs to be split and stacked. I must call my neighbor with whom I cut the firewood. Each fall, we rent a wood splitter together. One long day of feeding this powerful machine, and the wood for both of our families will be split. The firewood reminds me that the chimney must be swept. The soot from burning soft pine collects in the chimney, creating a fire hazard. I must clean this out a few times each winter. I can't help but seeing a verse of Chim Chimney as I do. There's no way to do this job without covering oneself with black. I recall that in Mary Poppins, it was purported to be good luck to shake the blackened hand of a chimney sweep. This messy job is one that I do enjoy. I like standing on a rooftop and taking in the views of South Boulder Peak 
and I enjoy the satisfaction of hearing the chimney draw when I rebuild the fire. There are other things to do. The dog houses need to be cleaned and inspected for damage. The water in their three-gallon water bucket will freeze solid at night unless I install a small heater to keep it liquid. The rain gauge must be taken into the house so it will not be damaged when water freezes in it. The antifreeze mixtures must be checked in the vehicles, and the coolant system may need a new flush and fill. September is also the month for putting the snow tires back on the vehicles. The snow tires must be relatively new to handle our frequent snows. We purchase tires in the fall and replace them with older tires in the spring in hopes of getting a second winter out of the new ones. After the second winter, we run the snow tires all summer to wear them down, and then we purchase new ones again that fall. In October of each year, the early snows surprise those who did not plan ahead. The steep hill on the road in front of our house collects vehicles with bald tires in its ditches. I have a length of rope that I use to pull people up the hill with my Bronco. One evening, as I was getting into bed, a neighbor knocked on our door. The truck she was driving was stuck. I dressed, retrieved my rope, and headed out into the surprise snow squall. Before I could pull this neighbor's truck out of the ditch, I had to clear the road by assisting another car up the grade. Then I pulled my neighbor's truck out and followed her home to her house at 9,000 feet. On returning home, I found two others stuck on our hill, and it seemed that as soon as I could get one vehicle over the rise, another would be turned sideways halfway up it. Everyone expressed surprise that the snow came before they changed out their tires. It seemed to be a common problem. Where did all these cars come from anyway? Finally, I found a break in the action that allowed me to park the truck and turn out all of our lights. It was midnight, and I concluded that it was not my job to stay up all night because others did not plan ahead. People going down the hill do not always fare better. Seven mailboxes and one small tree have been knocked over in the last four winters. Cars have spun off the road and been abandoned on the edge of our yard where they are buried by the snowplows. The people who took out our tree did so in the middle of the day. They assumed no one was around, I suppose, so they hurriedly found another vehicle, tied on a rope, and removed their car from the top of the downed tree. They did not knock on the door. They did not even say that they were sorry for destroying the tree. They simply sneaked away. What they did not know is that my wife was in the house watching the whole episode from a window. The tree was not a great loss to us. We have several dozen more growing on our acreage. Still, why would not these neighbors at least leave a note? Now when I see that particular RAV4 drive by, I always wonder, do they think they got away with something? What do they think when they pass by our house each day on the way to work? Are they bothered by the side of the butchered tree? It makes so much more sense to me to settle all debts. The peace of mind that comes from honesty is more valuable than some realize. Assisting people on the hill is an interesting way to meet the community. Everyone seems grateful, but I've never seen any of them a second time. I guess they bought new snow tires. How nice it would be if they were to stop by for a visit without the snow forcing them to do so. But our society is one of long commutes and television sets. The television absorbs any free time that people may have, while filling their minds with the fear that strangers are dangerous. Strangers may even commit the heinous acts by which viewers are shocked and entertained each evening. We've labored to break this cycle. Ann and I have knocked on all the doors of our neighbors. We introduce ourselves and try to be neighborly. I think this makes many nervous. People don't just knock on doors these days. Perhaps they should. We all need a good neighbor from time to time, and who knows, some might even find a good neighbor more enjoyable than the mindless programming of the television.
We've made some good friends this way, but not without significant effort. Early fall snows can affect more than just a few cars on our hill. One September, a group of us went camping just below Treeline. It was mid-afternoon when a friend named Brian, who had just moved to Colorado, eyed the peaks over our campsite. Hey, let's go and climb that one over there, he proposed. I knew better, but I'm also a fool for adventure. It will get dark while we're up there, and it looks like it'll likely snow as well, I warned. But I'm game if you are. That was my big mistake. I should have left my gameness at home that day. A third friend named Dan joined us, but others merely shook their heads. We grabbed our jackets and hiked without a trail toward the peak that we were later to learn was over 13,000 feet high. We left without adequate food, water, clothing, or even flashlights. We had only light jackets to block some of the wind. What is adventure if you have all the things you need? We could not have been much more foolish. The hike started well. The first mile or so, I felt stiff, but my legs soon limbered up, and we fell into a quick walking rhythm that carried us several more miles deeper and higher into the wilderness. I love the beginning of a hike. I imagine the coming scenes and adventure, and my heart races. Endorphins are triggered by this, and I feel that Rocky Mountain high before we even get past the trailhead. This was amazing country. We hiked along first one long, beautiful lake, and then another— The stream that connected the two sloshed and splashed through the valley as it ran clear as space. Spruce and lodgepoles were gathered along the landscape, but the forest was not dense. The space between the trees was occupied by lush meadows sprinkled with wildflowers of amazing varieties. Our progress was slowed as we negotiated around sizable cliffs and large knolls. The stream formed waterfalls in these sections, adding to my delight. I could feel the altitude starting to take its effect. The temperature had dropped and the air offered little resistance as I sucked it into my chest. We continued to hike forcefully, pushing ourselves. We knew that the hours of daylight would soon be spent. My legs burned as we pushed our way up this increasingly steeper terrain, but there was no time to pause. We commented on the beauty of the area between large gulps of thin air. This Cirque Valley showed the signs of ancient glaciers that had cut and gnawed their way down from the heights we were climbing. These massive rivers of ice and rock scraped out tall vertical walls and shaped the peaks ahead of us into spires and pyramid-shaped points. The rock cut from these precipitous heights lay scattered on the valley. Many were weathered and small, but others were the size of school buses. The glaciers had literally strip-mined these boulders from the rock walls and deposited them in moraines. Repeated glaciations stirred the various ores into an incongruous mixture. It does not make sense to see many differing types of igneous and metamorphic rocks all piled together. Areas that have not seen such glacial action have more homogeneous deposits. I found myself distracted from our hike by the unique mix of stones, but we could not break our pace. This was my first hike with Brian. I was pleased to find us fairly well matched in stamina. Dan, about five years younger, was a powerful hiker. The trees gave way to tundra quickly, and the tundra gave way to a vast field of boulders. Several hours had passed since we left the campsite, and the sun was hidden behind a new layer of clouds. Brief light rain showers wet our clothing. As the light got dimmer and dimmer, we began to realize that we had underestimated the distance to this peak. No one wanted to be the one to announce that it was time to turn back, however. 
Our goal to summit was replaced by the intoxication of being in the wonder of our surroundings. Besides, there is always a chance that the sky would clear and that a bright moon would allow us to make the top. Our light was almost gone when we found ourselves at the base of a monstrous wall of granite. There was a couloir that cut its way up through this wall, which would allow us to scramble up another thousand vertical feet or so, and would land us on a shoulder a few hundred feet below the summit. Wisdom had been screaming at us for quite some time, but the sheer pleasure of pushing our youthful bodies had drowned out her warnings. As we surveyed the couloir in the dim light, another icy shower started, and the rain turned into heavy, wet snow. One of us finally heard Wisdom speak. I think it was Dan who said we should turn back. My heart kept calling me to climb the couloir, but my head finally began to think straight. Dan was right. This was getting dangerous. Brian readily agreed. Only a few minutes had passed since the snow began collecting on the boulders, but there was already over an inch of lubrication on every surface. We were in deeper trouble than we had imagined. We still thought it was fun at this point as we scrambled and slid over the boulders. We fell a few times each, but no one was seriously hurt. The paws at the coolar had given my muscles enough time to express their fatigue. I wondered if Dan and Brian were as tired. The snow did not let up, and wind started whipping it into our faces. None of us had any winter gear. Our light jackets failed us in nature's chilling blast. I wore an airy cotton poncho that was heavy with rain and melted snow. It sagged from my shoulders. Brian and Dan were no better off. The warmth of the campfire and even the most basic of foods began to sound quite attractive. We paused on a moraine in the last of the evening's light. The darkness and the snow eliminated our visibility. I think we should not return the way we came, I said. There are a lot of drop-offs that way, and on the other side of the lakes I remember seeing a trail. If we can get to that trail, we can feel our way back to camp. Dan and Brian looked at me and agreed, but I could see in their faces that they knew the fun was over. We were beginning to get frightened. Dan had grown up in the city and was still a teenager. He had recently started exploring the mountains, but had little experience at altitude, Brian had never hiked in the mountains, having moved to Colorado from Michigan only several days earlier. I had previously summited a handful of 13 and 14,000 foot peaks. My experience, limited as it was at the time, still placed me in the role of responsibility. I felt that if something happened to us, it would be largely my fault. I had warned Brian and Dan before we left the camp that we could find ourselves in this predicament, but our desire for adventure had drowned me out. I should have turned us back sooner or even talked them out of this foolhardy stunt. We changed our course so that we could drop down onto the northern shores of the lake and stumbled and slid into the night. An hour later, we had made very little progress and several inches of snow had fallen. Snow was collecting on our shoulders and in our hair. Our body heat softened the snow and then the dropping temperatures caused it to freeze on our thin clothing. As the temperatures continued to drop, this layer of ice actually formed a little protection from the windy blast of snow. The darkness swallowed up the landscape. Without flashlights, we strained our eyes to see only about six feet ahead of us. The terrain was unpredictable and steep. We were still miles from the trail that we could only hope to see under the snow and in the dark. None of us could see. But Brian informed us that he had undergone eye surgery some years earlier and that the stress of the hike had somehow compromised his vision. He could only see out of one eye at this point. We could have almost closed his seeing eye and seen just as well in this soup. Our nerves were pushed. I found myself as close to terror as I had ever been. 
We had circumnavigated countless high cliffs on our way up. Now we were stumbling blindly down through these cliffs. A slip on a steep slope ahead could land one a hundred feet lower in a frightening slide, or it could launch us over a hundred-foot cliff. We couldn't see. We could not keep our footing. We were coated with ice. We were exhausted. We did not have food, water, coats, or even a rope. In these conditions, we needed powerful headlamps, crampons, ice axes, and climbing ropes. I could hear the others panting with fear, and I realized I was doing the same. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep this show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming. Until the next time, get out and have some fun. Music